This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast, and I am Liel Leibowitz. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that usually you hear from me and my two co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Mark Oppenheimer. We talk about the news of the Jews. We have a Jewish guest of the week, a Gentile guest of the week, some mail from the J Crew. But today is a little bit different. So look, we love every episode we do here at Unorthodox, and we work really hard to make each episode feel special. But if I'm being honest, there's one special episode we do every year that, well, that I love more than all the others. It's our annual conversion episode. This is the fifth year we're doing it. And honestly, there's no greater privilege to those of us who work on this show than to hear from listeners who are finding their way back home to Judaism tell us how much unorthodox means to them and share with us their stories of becoming Jewish. You know, we're all converts, even those of us who are born to Jewish parents and Jewish grandparents and Jewish great-grandparents. In a few days, we'll be celebrating the holiday of Shavuot and receiving the Torah. But if you actually read the Torah, you know that the Israelites who received it, our ancient ancestors, those guys who walked for 40 years in the desert, well, they all had to convert to Judaism to make it legit. They had to be circumcised. They had to dip in the mikvah. They had to partake in the Paschal sacrifice, which are all things we still do today, literally or symbolically, before we get to call ourselves Jews. And we don't just do them once in a lifetime and that's it. We put a shank bone on our Passover plate, for example, to remind us of this ancient sacrifice, which means that, symbolically speaking, we perform a mini-conversion of sorts at least once a year. And if we're really being honest, we kind of convert to Judaism every day. Because you can't just be Jewish. You have to do Jewish. You have to choose to learn and grow and practice whatever it is that you practice and grow and learn about. And that, that's a lifelong project. Guiding us through today's episode are the three people who toil to make us, the hosts, sound much better, much smarter, much funnier and more interesting than we actually really are in real life. Our producers, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller. The stories we bring you today are about lifelong journeys about conversions that never really end, about guilt and joy and all the other essential emotions you feel when you lose and find your religion. We kick things off with our very own producer, Quinn Waller, who is converting to Judaism and found herself with a bad case of imposter syndrome, worrying that all the studying she's doing still leaves her not knowing enough to really be able to call herself a Jew. Then we hear from Hunter Thomas, who started thinking about converting while listening to Unorthodox on a bus headed to, you guessed it, the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And finally, we bring you the incredible story of Yael Wallace. You've heard her tell a little bit about herself on our 2019 conversion episode. But a near-death experience and some family drama and a fateful trip to Israel changed everything about the way she thought about her Judaism and herself. So wherever you are on your own conversion journey, we hope you enjoy this episode.
Hi there. It's producer Josh Cross. Our regular listeners are already used to hearing from our wonderful associate producer, Quinn Waller. When she joined our team last fall, Quinn told me she was in the process of converting to Judaism, which I hadn't realized. I then told her what I tell everyone, especially budding audio producers. Record it. Diaries, thoughts, whatever you're feeling at any given moment. I wanted her to bring us along on her experience, which she graciously did. Have a listen. This shit is hard. This shit is so hard. I... I'm literally sobbing on Central Park West right now. Like, this is so embarrassing. Yup, that's me. You're probably wondering how I ended up in this situation. Let's rewind a bit. I'm Quinn Waller, a producer on Unorthodox. And if you've heard me on this show before, you know that I'm converting to Judaism. I'm not getting married. I'm not crazy. I'm a pretty normal 23-year-old in New York City who is converting to Judaism because it just feels right. The process hasn't been easy so far, but not for the reasons you might think. My family and friends have all been incredibly supportive. I live in New York City where it's pretty easy to be a Jew. It's not even the year-long class I have to take or all the books I have to read or things I have to learn. Of the millions of people that have converted to Judaism, all the way from Ruth to Ivanka, I have it easier than almost all of them. But the thing that's been roughest for me is how fake I feel. I have a serious case of imposter syndrome. If you're not familiar with it, imposter syndrome is the nagging feeling that you don't deserve the success or status that you've achieved. It's not just me or even people converting. To some extent, most people feel it at one point or another. It's kind of like the cliche, fake it till you make it, except you never feel like you've made it. The term was coined in 1978 by two psychologists, Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes, when they were studying high-achieving women. Still, it's not shocking that someone going through a conversion might feel this way. My cantor, Stefano Iacono, is actually a convert himself and converted about 10 years ago. He shared some thoughts about how he used to feel around the time of his conversion. I felt really alienated especially by the holidays. My friends would share all of these beautiful stories about you know, how they celebrated the holidays with their families. And it would just make me mad because I felt like, why didn't I have that? And it just felt alienating from this faith that I had chosen, this faith that made me feel all right. So I think for me, what I struggle with, feeling like there's like a certain amount of knowledge that I need to accrue before I go to the mikvah. <laughs> I also feel like I don't just practically know enough. I like, I don't know like the prayers. I don't know like how to pray. I'm, I'm going to cry. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> no, I feel this so much. I feel this. <laughs> um, first of all, like how do I learn? And then second of all, like how do I? Yes, <laughs> yes, so yes. Like, oh my God. No, <laughs> like, yes. How do I feel okay knowing that, like, as much as I learn, I'm still not going to be able to, like, know everything? Well, none of us ever will. <laughs> none of us ever will. But, like, why Judaism is so incredible is because it's a, it's a commitment 
to that lifelong study. You'll never know it all, but no Jew ever did. I was definitely forcing the imposter syndrome on myself, and I didn't, I didn't realize. Um, I think a lot of us do that. <laughs> it's really easy to fall into that, to know I'll wait until I'm going to be the perfect Jew. Well, we're never going to be the perfect Jew. Nobody is the perfect Jew. And also nobody's a bad Jew. Like, that's not possible. We are supposed to struggle with this. That is the point. I still feel at times like I'm a kindergartner in Hebrew school and everybody around me knows what's happening and I'm just learning it step by step. I literally learned how to chant the Amidah two weeks ahead of my fourth graders because I was leading services as I was learning the prayers. And it was the weirdest feeling, but I realized one day that the fourth graders looked to me as a Jewish adult who just knew how to do this stuff. Did that mess with you at all? Oh, or was it sure. affirming? Well, you know what? Affirmation can mess with you too. If a guy who is an actual cantor and teaches kids and converts has his moments, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that I do. But sometimes even all the stuff I have done doesn't do the trick. I was a Jewish studies minor in college. I'm decently conversational in Hebrew. I attempt to go to services every week. I didn't need any chametz during Passover. I work for Tablet Magazine. I even wrote my senior thesis about the Book of Ruth. I wasn't even thinking of converting at the time. And yet, sometimes I still turn into a sobbing pile of self-doubt. This just sucks. This just really sucks. And I just feel like I can't catch up. But honestly, I do know a lot. This whole feeling like I don't know enough thing is 100% just me psyching myself out. Sometimes you just can't get out of the swamp on your own. So I called up someone with a similar story for a little insight. Like me, Monica DiLorenzo is a Vassar alum who jumped into conversion shortly after graduation. She had previously left a voicemail on the unorthodox line, letting me know that she's about 10 years ahead of me, and she was willing to give me some advice. What's important is that you don't give up on the struggle. That's part of Judaism, right? You're constantly questioning and redefining and figuring it out. And just know that when you come up from that water in the mikvah, that you are Jewish. And that's what the rabbi said to me. They sang Simon Tov Tov, and then he grabbed me and just held me by the shoulders and looked me in the eyes and said, you are Jewish. And that is just what you have to like take into your heart and know and know that it is you. It is you. You go and you get your stamp of approval. <laughs> Sure, I'll get my mikvedunk participation trophy, but I felt like I wanted to talk to somebody with even more experience. So I called up Lynn Mendelson, who happens to be the president of her synagogue and converted 43 years ago. You are already all you need to be. You are yourself, you are a full person, a good giving person and a, a living intelligence that is in this world. And that's all you need to do to be a good Jewish person. And therefore, you are just fine. You don't need to be anything else other than what you are. But just also know, as I think I've really learned, that you have to learn to be Jewish. And all Jewish people are learning every day a little more about how to be Jewish, even people who were born Jewish. That made me feel better, but there's a part of me that feels like I'm missing tons and tons of the small details. It's the everyday minutia that digs into me, and I don't want other people to think I'm a fake. My synagogue 
is getting rid of its mask mandate soon, which is like, okay, great. But like, the mask was covering up that like, I didn't know the words to things. I'm gonna have to go to services now. <laughs> People are gonna see my mouth and see that my mouth is not saying the right words. And like, I just, <sighs> What I really needed was to talk to one of the people that I imagined would be judging me, somebody that's been going to synagogue since they were in the womb. I went to Hebrew school three days a week growing up from, I guess, kindergarten through my bat mitzvah. And then I went to Hebrew high school once or twice a week. I can't remember now. And I feel like I didn't learn anything. This is Lisa Ann Sandel, an author, editor, and lifelong Jew. Unorthodox listeners may also know Lisa as one of the hosts of our podcast, Anxiously, and as the wife of our unorthodox co-host, Liel Leibovitz. Liel knows an intimidating amount about Judaism, enough to make a lot of people feel like an imposter. And um, I feel like I don't know anything about actual practice. I don't know how to pray. I don't know the prayers. I don't there's a lot. I've never been in a mikvah. I've, I totally identify with imposter syndrome. I mean, when we go to Shabbos dinners at, at people's homes, like, I don't know anything. What I struggle with is getting comfortable enough to put my toes in and start because it feels so daunting. I wish I had that sense of, I don't know, self-knowledge and confidence and uh, certainty. Certainty is the word I'm looking for. I wish I had that sense of certainty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She did say that her kids are coming up through Jewish day school, and that's helping her get more comfortable in her practice. It's a reminder that even 20 years from now, I'm still going to be learning one way or another. And to be honest, it'll be great to have my kids come home from Hebrew school and tell me what I'm still doing wrong. So I've talked to a couple of converts and someone who was raised Jewish. And they all seem to feel like me, which is kind of comforting. But what about somebody who doesn't feel that way and is comfortable in their Jewishness? I talked to Miranda Means, who converted a couple years ago but is remarkably chill. Remember what it means to be a chosen person, which is that you choose, right? The original story of the Jews is that we chose. We chose to worship God. We chose the covenant. And so as a convert, you're in a special position to get to choose. Like you get to make that active decision. You weren't just born Jewish. You're choosing to, to enter the religion. And I think that's an incredible gift. Keep in mind that choosing is a special thing. Really, the only way to get out of my head is to own it, to recognize myself as chosen. In Shavuot 39a, the Talmud says that my soul was there at Sinai, and I have to choose to accept me as I am. I haven't gone to the mikveh yet, but when I do, I'm sure I'll still have questions. Maybe I won't have the songs and prayers completely memorized. Maybe I'll still be foggy on what it is I'm supposed to do as a grown-up at Purim. And what I finally realized is, that's okay. It's okay to not know. It's good to not know. It's Jewish to not know. It's holy to keep asking. 
Quinn, I promise to never exploit your existential angst for content ever again. But seriously, thank you. Hey, producer Robert here. A couple months ago, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel all flew to beautiful Norfolk, Virginia for a live show. While there, they met listener Hunter Thomas. Hunter told them his conversion story, and they promptly turned around and told us, the producers, we've got to get Hunter Thomas on the conversion episode. Now, they may have said that because the three of them actually end up looking pretty good in this story, but I think it's a pretty great story nonetheless. Here is super listener Hunter Thomas. My name is Hunter Thomas. I am originally from Youngstown, Ohio, and I currently am residing in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I finished my conversion formally, uh, you know, dunked in the mikvah in October of 2020. It was Sukkot 2020. I started listening to Unorthodox, gosh, it feels like it's been forever, (laughs) probably sometime in 2018. I didn't really grow up religious. When I was younger, I went to a non-denominational Christian church. Sometime in college, I decided to go to the Unitarian Universalist church that was near campus. Um, So I went there for a while. Um, So I guess you could say that before I was Jewish, I was uh, Unitarian. So I started listening to Unorthodox with the conversion episodes. I had just gone back a couple years. I think I listened to the conversion episode from 2018 and then whatever years had been available before that because I was thinking about whether or not I really wanted to take the step towards official conversion. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to listen to these conversion episodes. And I think after that, I just started listening weekly, picking up sometime in 2018. The... Center for Judaic Studies and Holocaust Studies at my university, Youngstown State University, went on a yearly trip to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And I I went on the trip a total of three times. And the first two times that I went on it, which would have been 2016 and 2017, I was going because it was a relatively cheap trip to D.C. The buses were arranged. I got to go to the museum and then spent the day in D.C. And of course, you know, I... I experienced the museum. It was incredibly moving. But as a lot of the other people on the trip, I kind of, I didn't rush through it, but I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the museum. So I went on the trip twice. And the third time I was scheduled to go was in November of 2018, which was only a couple weeks after the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. I remember when... I got the news notification on my phone about Tree of Life. It really hit me hard. And at that point, I had been in a couple of months of the conversion process. I started going to services in August of 2018. And of course, you know, my brother was busy with high holidays then. So I really hadn't met with him formally a whole lot. It was kind of an informal introduction to the synagogue. You know, I was going to Shabbat services, but I really hadn't considered the formal aspects of conversion, you know, meeting with him regularly, going to classes, But in that moment, I felt like it was really hitting me that the people that were in that synagogue, the people who had been hurt or killed, it didn't just feel like they were someone else. It felt like they were they were my people. And so in that moment, it was like something shifted. And so a couple of weeks later, when I was on the bus to the Holocaust Museum, 
it was kind of like I had this moment where I was like, I'm I'm doing this. I'm going to convert Judaism. I, I want to be Jewish. I feel Jewish. And so I pulled up the conversion episodes and listened to them and probably them and a couple of other episodes on my way to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. By the time that I left, I, I bought a, a Star of David necklace in the gift shop, said Zahor on it, remember? And when people asked what the Hebrew meant on the necklace, I explained that, you know, I had gotten at the Holocaust Museum. It, it meant literally to remember the Holocaust. But for me, it was a remembrance of the fact that I was choosing to join a people that had been and continue to be persecuted and that it wasn't a decision I was making lightly. It was something I needed to remember. Unorthodox definitely had an impact on my my Jewish journey, both as, as a Jew, but also my professional career. I think before listening to the podcast, I didn't realize there were so many robust Jewish communities all across North America and the world, but also that I don't think I realized until I was listening to an Orthodox that like the Jewish communal profession existed. You know, that I could spend my career working in Jewish institutions, doing Jewish things. I think that that was something that Unorthodox opened my eyes to. The Jewish community in Youngstown is very small. There's somewhere, the number we usually throw out is 2,000. It's possibly less than that. Um, And so I really had to create sort of, especially when it comes to young people, a Jewish community of my own. And of course, you know, I went through my URJ conversion class and met people online from all over, and I'm still in touch with a lot of them, but listening to an Orthodox helped me really connect to cultural Judaism. So, of course, when I was talking with my rabbi, he could teach me about prayers and the melodies for the songs and and the the rituals on the holidays. But when it came to things like whether or not Jews back into parking spaces or use top sheets or those sorts of the fun things that come up on the podcast, um, you know, it was the podcast that helped me look into that. But I also, I made my first babka during quarantine and I posted a picture of it in the Facebook group and I said, you know, I think it's time for somebody to call the rabbi. Like, this this should be it. The amount of time that it takes to put into a babka, like that, that should have been it. Unorthodox co-host Stephanie Butnick here. Can we talk about how good this episode is? I'm so proud of our production team for their work and grateful to everyone who shared their stories with us. The Jewish holiday of Shavuot marks the day the Israelites got the Torah. On Shavuot, Jews eat cheesecake and stay up all night to study. Why do we do that? It's kind of a long story. To learn all about Shavuot and find delicious dairy recipes, including Joe Nathan's blintzes and cheesecake, head to tabletmag.com slash Shavuot. That's spelled S-H-A-V-U-O-T. Shavuot also marks the end of the Omer, the seven weeks between Passover and Shavuot and a time of heightened spiritual meaning. But there's still time to catch up on Kylie Unell's amazing podcast, 49 Days to Stretch My Soul, her daily quest to make this time count. Search 49 Days wherever you listen to podcasts. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. 
Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. It's associate producer Quinn Waller. About six months ago, when we were starting to plan this year's conversion episode, co-host Mark Oppenheimer suggested we check in on a guest from our 2019 conversion episode, Ashley Wallace. She was the woman in Alabama whose best friend Will helped her make it through her conversion. Did her family ever come around to support her decision? Had she managed to find a Jewish community? Well, after maybe five minutes of talking to her, we knew we had to share the dramatic update. So here's producer Robert Scaramuccia with the rest of her story. I guess the first thing you need to know is that Ashley Wallace is no longer with us. She didn't die. Not exactly. But you can't talk to her anymore. That person three years ago is not who I really am. And she was a shell. That voice belongs to Yael Wallace, an immigrant to Israel who makes a killer kosher mac and cheese. She was once Ashley Wallace, Southern Christian from Alabama. Yael looks like Ashley and kind of talks like her. 
with a bunch of Hebrew thrown in. But legally, and essentially, she's now Yael Wallace. What I'm going to do is tell you how that happened. Actually, a lot of people have been wondering about that recently. When we first met Yael on our 2019 conversion episode, she'd just gone before Beit Din in Alabama to convert. When I talked to her a few weeks ago, she'd just been questioned by another Beit Din, a rabbinic court. This one 20 kilometers south of Jerusalem in an Israeli settlement in the West Bank. So on my Beit Din the other day, they asked me, they said, so why are you here? And I thought, why am I here? And I said, because I'm finally ready to live my life. I'm ready to begin living a Jewish life. I've come this far and it's time and it needs to be finished because I can't keep doing this. And then they just kind of looked at me and they said, okay, but like, how'd you get here? And I said, with a car. (laughs) How did you get here? From Alabama to Israel and from one Beit Din to another. It's a legitimate question, and one you might be asking yourself if you listened to that last segment with Yael. After all, didn't she already convert? This is the story of how Yael Wallace converted, again, to Judaism. For reasons we'll get into, that first conversion meant a lot to her, but it also didn't quite take. She needed more. To understand how Yael ended up in front of three rabbis off Highway 60, we have to go back to where we left off. Back to Shavuot three years ago. June, outside of Birmingham. Yael had just got her coffee and sat down at her desk to work. She got an email from a friend that said, hey, I think that podcast about you is out. And to be honest, I never listened to it. Because after I went on and after I recorded, I had a massive breakdown. It was the first time that I was starting to actually process things and really ask myself on a deeper level, is this how you want to live? Is this a life worth living? The life she lived at home with her parents was a suffocating one. She was a Jewish convert. And everyone in her very religious corner of Alabama treated her like a Jewish convert. By which I mean, they treated her like a once and future Christian. Every get-together was another chance to suggest she get right with God. Down to the funerals. Most of the time, church is here. If you die, your funeral is not about you. It's about being saved. There were all these questions. Why can't you trust in the Holy Trinity? Why can't you marry a godly man? Why can't you just get right and stop making a fuss with all this Jewish stuff? The question underlying all the rest was, why can't you just do what we say so we can save your soul? Yael had been hearing that one in one form or another since she was 11. That's when she learned the following facts, one after the other. One, Jews still existed, and she could learn about them. Two, they had some principles of faith from this guy named Maimonides. 
three, she was a Jew. When I went through those principles of faith when I was 11, something inside of me was like, this is genuinely how I feel. This is completely devoid of that icky feeling I feel when I'm having to learn Trinity and theology. Everyone starts with, I believe with perfect faith. You know, I believe with perfect faith that the Messiah will come and though he may tarry, I shall wait in rapture. And I was like, yeah, because I don't think the Messiah has come. I don't think that. In her Protestant home, Yael took her Judaism where she could get it, which meant watching Rugrats with half-Jew Tommy Pickles and watching The Prince of Egypt on VHS again and again. She knew she believed in God and that Judaism spoke to her more than anything else. I remember finding information and it feeling like life was being breathed into me. It felt like connections were being made. It was taglit, like discovery. Inside, I was a baby Jew. I was a little baby Jew. (laughs) The person who had the biggest problem with the El's Jewishness, both way back then and after she converted, was her mom, a fervent Baptist who would make her disapproval abundantly clear. We will be at the mall. We'll be having a great day. We will have had tacos. We'll have laughed. We'll have reminisced. And then she'll turn to me and she'll be like, I really hope that you're not going to hell. We were just chilling. I just wanted to know if this foundation was nice. I need mascara. I don't need Jesus. When the conversion episode came out in 2019, Gael was still living with her parents and working for her dad. She couldn't go to synagogue. She couldn't keep a kosher kitchen. She couldn't be a Jew in all the ways she wanted to be. And I knew that ultimately the biggest threat that I faced staying in Alabama was vanishing. How on earth do you continue to be a Jew and have Jewish children when you're the only Jew? How do you do it? If I have kids here, I've doomed them. I've doomed them to not have choices. And I wanted them to have the choice that if they want to be Jewish, they can be. So Yael made plans to get out, to make Aliyah and go to Israel. She applied to Massah Israel Journey, which puts Jews in the diaspora in public service jobs, like teaching English. She set a departure date, August 24th, 2020. And then a pandemic came. Yael stayed fixated on August 24th, 2020. Well, actually, on a date a little before that. The date she'd have to tell her dad she was quitting and her mom she was leaving. That day came in July. She got through telling her dad at work. He kind of just accepted it. She went home to tell her mom, feeling sick with stress. She passed out. From that day on, I was fighting for my life. Yael had contracted COVID pneumonia. She was sick at home for weeks, and then in and out of clinics, and then in the ICU. It was really bad. There was talk of chest x-rays, and then ventilators, and then waking up in the arms of the Lord. 
I sat there in the bed and I thought, Hashem, why? I have come so far. What have I done that I don't merit entering in to Eretz Israel? The thing that kept coming back to her mind while talking to God, or Hashem, was her conversion. The one we heard about last time. She had some issues with it. Of course, her family didn't attend, but it wasn't just that. The whole thing didn't sit right. She wanted a more orthodox conversion and the freedom to live a more orthodox life. She asked God for help. Help me understand what I need to do if I live, if you spare me in order to get on the right track. And I thought, well, it's going to Israel and starting that conversion and never having this situation arise again. When you're in the hospital for long enough, you start counting. There are doctors and nurses and machines all barking these numbers at you, and there's nothing else to do, so you count. These are Yael's numbers when she left the hospital. 24 days without eating. 26 days without showering. 30 pounds, gone. 20 pounds of muscle, gone. Seven steps before she'd fall down. A 12-ounce can of Coke she couldn't hold over her head. And one person she still hadn't told about Israel. Her mom. Because, of course, she was still going to make Aliyah that August. When Yael sets a date, she sets a date. And honestly, she still wasn't totally out of the woods yet, health-wise. If she was going to die, she wanted to die newly converted in Israel with a Jewish burial. So she had to tell her. So it's two weeks now before I'm supposed to leave. She doesn't know. So I went and I told her, and it was beyond, there are no words. For her reaction. There was argument after argument for days and days. Yael and her mom actually agreed on one thing, that that stay in the hospital was a message from God. For Yael, the message was, deepen your connection to Judaism. For Yael's mom, the message was, come back to Christianity or suffer disease and affliction. Yael got packing. I put my life into two pink suitcases, a ridiculous color to have when you're fleeing a country, when you're fleeing a life. Yael and her two pink suitcases got on a plane, and then another, and then she was home. You know, my favorite part of getting to Ben Gurion is like walking that beautiful hallway down with that glass on the wall because, you know, I come from the glass business and that curtain wall with that double plated tinted glass. And I get to see that Jerusalem stone and, and have that moment of like, this is this is what we've culminated in. Look at us. We have an airport. It's beautiful. I'm proud of this. Yael's first few weeks in Israel were a haze. She was only a few weeks out from almost dying in the hospital, and she had to relearn how to write and how to walk, how to breathe in the heat of Haifa. She had to learn enough Hebrew to manage at her massage job, teaching kids English. 
first in Haifa, and then in Beersheba. But soon enough, she had a fruit guy, and a vegetable guy, and a guy from Moroccan fish, and a favorite Arab bakery. Beersheba is the Alabama of Israel, and I mean it in the best way. It's slower. People are a little bit more friendly and warm. Most people in Israel are friendly and warm unless you're in the center. And I know that I'm going to get a lot of hate for that, but like, it's true. Y'all are the deplorables. And (laughs) I mean in love, but listen, Beersheba, it is the jewel of the Negev. Yael eventually felt like she belonged with the deplorables and everyone else. She speaks a little Russian which helps her with the older Russian immigrants she comes across. Sometimes I get a babushka and she is now my babushka and I will translate something if I can or I'll go take her somewhere or I'll help her. She believes I belong there. She she has no question that I belong there. She, she, she's so confident that I belong that she wants me to help her at the doctor. I belong here more than I do anywhere else and it kind of scares me to, to consider going back to the state. Because y'all have Walmart. You go to one store and you have every single thing that you could ever want in that one store. I'm so Israeli now at the point where like I look at different groups of people and I'm like, nah, you got the best this. I'm going over there. So maybe I like the Israeli way better. We had two attacks during Shavuot's uh, lunch. One of the hardest parts of living in Israel came when Yael was supervising a lunch as part of her massage job. We ran out and I heard some of the little girls, we had about 12 kids at the meal, make like this pain noise. And we ran uh, to the shelter and then I noticed that she, they had run over broken glass. I picked her up and I just remember like her little feet like bleeding through the tights. And we descended into the Miklat, the rocket shelter, and it was pitch black. I got to the bottom of the stairs and I felt water. So it's pitch black and now there's water around my ankles. And I'm freaked out. So eventually somebody finds a way to turn a light on while you hear the thoom, thoom, and like the thuds. And I've got this kid who's bleeding. And she's crying. She's not being like making a scene, but she's crying because it hurt. And I love this kid. Um, I love his family. And seeing her like that, you know, she's eight. And yeah, you know, there are moments when you leave one of these shelters and you think, well, my God, you know, like I chose to be here. And then you have to start asking yourself, like, well, what makes it worth it? Yael had come to Israel to live and die a Jew. In those moments, in rocket shelters, behind shrapnel doors, she knew she wasn't yet where she wanted to be. When Yael first landed in Israel, she was and was not a Jew at the same time. We don't have time to get into the complexity of the modern Israeli state, but basically, the government considered her Jewish enough to make Aliyah, but the chief rabbinate which controls things like marriage and conversion in Israel, didn't consider her a member of the tribe. And it wasn't just the rabbinate, way off in Jerusalem. In some parts of Israel, 
the line between Jewish and not Jewish enough is thickest between close friends. Yael loved having Shabbat dinners with her more Orthodox friends, learning everything she could from them. But there were these little things that would bug her and remind her that she still had work to do. There is a family that I go to that they cover their wine because I'm there, because they consider me to be goy, to be a non-Jew. And it hurts. And they're so stringent. They're like really Haredi. So I, I kind of get it. You know, I get it. But to see that bottle on the table every Shabbat and it's covered because I'm not kosher. And I know it's me. Even at Pesach, when we say like, you know, like who knows one? And I'm like, me, (laughs) I know one. It's me. So while she'd been teaching and checking hexures and helping little old babushkas across the street, She'd also been going to conversion class, something a lot more orthodox than what she'd done in the States, which on the one hand was exactly why she'd come here. On the other hand, they were absolutely bonkers. It was a balagon, a chaos, a tragedy. They had me afraid of every single thing about Judaism. It was joyless. Everything felt wrong with this conversion class. It's not that it was rigid, but more that it seemed to be rigid about the wrong things, at least to Yael. And when I would ask for what does the law say, they would get angry at me. Don't bring a convert something and then I'll expect them not to argue. We are baby Jews. We fight from day one. This is what Jews do. You fight and you argue and you talk. This was not the Judaism that I saw the Orthodox Mahmir, stringent families that I'm friends with, that I go and do Shabbat with, that I lived with. I didn't see this Judaism. What I saw was in their home, love. It was kindness. It was doing the mitzvot with a smile. It was taking on things that you can. It was adding when you could. It was don't take on too much. Do what you can. And then maybe one day take on something else. It seemed like Yael was back where she started in Alabama, facing the same questions. Why can't you do what we say? Why can't you stop making a fuss? Why can't you just get right? She went to the class for about a year until she didn't anymore. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I just washed my hands of it in the eyes of the state, I wasted 12 months of my life. And I could have gone to the big dean. They begged me to go. But there, you remember, I have this problem where I don't want to lie. <laughs> and I don't want to do something that's going to put me back in that situation that I was in in the hospital where I wondered if I had done something wrong to not merit. And I thought, if I convert, under their name, will it be kosher? Because I'm not going to live the way that they want me to live. Is that not faking? Yael threw away those 12 months and started another conversion program, her third in the last five years. 
this one was just different. A lot better. Like, according to Yael, flowers and sunshine and puppies and kitties better. For the first time in a long time, she got to ask the questions. The rabbi was, you know, I would send him questions and I'd be like, listen, do I need to have aluminum foil on my plata all the time? Or like, is that just something other people are doing? Because my friend says I have to, but I know people who don't. And he would be like, oh, this is such a random question. No, you don't have to, but it's easier for cleanup. And I'm like, thank you, Rabbi, for addressing my real-world scenario question. The months sailed by until there she was at the new Beit Din, way up in a fraught in the West Bank. She's nervous as all hell. Because even if she's confident in her Judaism, she knows what's coming. Two, maybe three sessions with the Beit Din before she can even think about immersing in the mikvah and completing her conversion. She took out her phone and recorded how she felt in the parking lot. I just have a lot of high hopes that this is gonna work out, but I'm really scared and I am second guessing everything. Like, do I look okay? Should I be thinking about like, oh, it's Shabbat Hagadol. Uh, you know, oh, the Rebbe's birthday was, you know, yesterday. It was the 120th, I think. And see, now I'm not even, I'm not sure. So it's it's a lot. Do you know it's bad when you start to eat a bareka and you're like, no, I can't even finish this bareka because I'm so, I'm so upset. Like the day you can't finish a bareka, those are the days the stakes are high. Yael's got no family with her, of course. But sitting with her and her unfinished bareka is Allison, a friend from Beersheba. Yael says she's actually more like family. Soon enough, the coordinator from her conversion program tells her it's time to go. And I said, can, can Allison come? And she said, yeah, why not? So she goes in and eyes the three rabbis who will determine whether she's ready to go to the mikvah. The first one looks mean, the second neutral, and the third one is beaming. He has this joyous radiance from him. And I'm like, what even, sir, put it inside? This is serious. <laughs> I'm terrified and I almost am more afraid of you because you're so positive. I've never met a bait dean that was positive. It's like something out of a fairy tale. She asks them where to sit. They tell me where to sit. I can feel Allison in the back. And I'm like, okay, she's here. I'm not alone. And then there's that question. Why are you here? And Yael says, because I'm ready. And they say, no, like, how did you get here? And Yael's like, by car. And they're like, no, 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 no. How did you, Yael Wallace, get here? And she's like, oh. You mean, because I'm a Jew from Alabama, and you don't get a ton of those out here. I tell him, you know, I tell him the big geschichte, the big story, the big history that everybody has heard already. Then Yael does what you do at the Beit Din. She says, this is how I observe Shabbat. This is how I keep commandments. This is how I participate in my Jewish community. This prayer book, here in my hands, is my favorite prayer book. After a while, I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to throw up. 
and I just have to wait for them to make their decision. And they normally leave and, and they make a, they talk or they, I don't know, eat, they do whatever they want to do. And they come back and they're normally like, okay, well, you know, we think you need one more visit or we think you're going to need more visits. But the rabbis didn't leave. Not the mean one, not the neutral one, and not the happy one. And I thought, okay, you're supposed to get up now so I can also go puke. They were talking and I just thought, you have rooms. There are rooms here. Go to them. And then they go, we feel good about this. Are you ready? And I said, for what? And they said, well, we're sure. And I said, I don't understand. And I could feel Allison behind me. And I heard her cry. And I thought, oh, my God, what's happening to Allison? <laughs> like I, I was, I really went into shock. I felt really dumb. I felt like, why don't I understand what's happening? And they said, you have to stand up now and you have to proclaim, you have to make proclamations and like you have to take upon you, like you have to make a vow. And I'm like, now? And they're like, yeah, they're being real positive. The mean man is smiling. The medium mean man seems really excited and joyful man is beyond joyous. He's like the sun. And I'm like, I can't even look at you. You're too bright. Yael stands and she proclaims her faith. And then an hour later, she immerses in the mikvah with the happy rabbi leading the prayers. There in the water, she became Yael Devora Wallace. Yael from her previous conversion, Devora from this one. Then all of a sudden, she was out in the parking lot and it was time to go home. Here's more from her recording that day. Okay, so it's after the mikvah. I have cried. I have taken on a new Hebrew name. I don't really know what to do now that it's finished. Like, I'm just really glad that it's finished. I'm just really ready to be like a full-fledged member of like my kahila, my community. And like hopefully Bezra Hashem, like planning a wedding, getting married, having kids, and not having to worry about them. It hasn't even really hit me now that like it's over. This part's over. Cause obviously my Jewish life is never going to be over because you you gotta wake up tomorrow. And I was literally planning what am I gonna cook for Shabbat because I'm hosting somebody. <laughs> and I was like, but what goes with Moroccan fish? So I don't know. I feel I like I finally feel like okay. And I'm just really happy and I'm I'm really just so thankful for the people that have helped me get here. Yael Devora had a Shabbat meal to prepare. Yael Devora had a house to clean for Passover. Yael Devora had Jewish obligations. Glorious Jewish obligations. Yael Devora had gotten right. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Liel Leibowitz, together with Stephanie Butnick and Mark Oppenheimer. 
were produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller. And our team includes Sara Fredman Ader, Dorona Skay, and Tanya Singer. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by our dear friend and teacher, Rabbi David Bashevkin. We come to you from the closest thing we have to a temple, Tablet Studios, in the heart of New York. Shalom, friends. <laughs>